Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Bradley Godfrey discusses his book, Roads to Gettysburg, Lee's Invasion of the North, 1863. Brad Gottfried, author of Roads to Gettysburg, Lee's Invasion of the North, 1863. What's in this book that hasn't already been in 100,000 Civil War books already? Well, that's a very good question, Brian, because so much has been written about the Civil War, especially Gettysburg. Um, not much about how the armies got to the battlefield. Um, from the battlefield around uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, Chancellorsville, up to Gettysburg. To me, that was an exciting period. We don't usually know about that, and I wanted to write about that. So people also would have a better understanding of how these soldiers were feeling when they got to the battlefield. Now, your book kind of takes a day-by-day -day chronology of what each, uh, each army did on their way to Gettysburg, and you start with June 3rd, mm -hmm. 1863. Why did you pick June 3rd? Well, that's when everything was starting to come together. Um, there had been the massive battle of Chancellorsville during the early part of May, and uh, this was Lee's, considered to be Lee's greatest victory. Only had about half of his uh, army there. He was up against an army of about 100,000 federal troops, and he almost destroyed the army. And Lee got to a point where he said, you know what, I'm winning battle after battle after battle, and yet I'm not getting anywhere and so maybe I need to have another invasion of the North. So the 3rd of June is when he starts to mobilize the troops. Now this was not a, a split decision where he just decided all at once. He'd been planning this for many months. Uh, he had invaded before, you know, the prior September. Didn't get nearly as far as Gettysburg. Actually got to Southern Maryland before he was stopped at the Battle of Antietam. But now he felt this is the time to do it again because uh, they, they were not get to victory Without, without really an invasion of the North. Was there some moment that he announced to his generals, okay, we're heading for Pennsylvania? Well, it's, it's interesting because he spent months and months scrounging troops. This was a battle where he had more troops, 75,000 troops, than he ever had before. So he, it took considerable amounts of time for him to get troops from North Carolina, from Southern Virginia, to work with Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy to literally beg for additional troops. Also, there was a lot of controversy as to what Lee should be doing and, and that wonderful army. You know, it's, Lee's army is considered to be the finest fighting force that America ever fielded. Should it go west, you know, uh, join uh, Braxton Bragg's army and destroy Grant's army to the west? Um, should it go to, go to Vicksburg and help to relieve the siege at Vicksburg, which was a major port city? Um, or should it invade the North? And, and quite frankly, Lee did not want to go West, and he didn't want any part of his army going West. He wanted to invade the North. So part of it was convincing the cabinet that this was the approach to take, to move North, to um, invade perhaps Pennsylvania, capture Harrisburg, maybe Philadelphia, and maybe sue for peace at that point. How many people knew that that was his plan? 
Well, how far down into the Army did they know they were heading for Pennsylvania? It's a good question. Um, probably not that far. I would say that certainly the generals knew about it. Um, colonels, probably not, because if you read many of the diaries, um, you know, the enlisted men, all they knew was on uh, the 4th, 5th, 6th, etc., they were moving west toward Culpeper Courthouse. They didn't know an invasion was in process. And for Lee, though, he wasn't certain there was going to be invasion either because he took a great gamble. He was facing about 100,000 uh, federal troops on the other side of the Rappahannock River. And what he needed to do was to slip around the right flank and move north. But he wasn't certain that as he slipped around the right flank, they wouldn't then, the, that major army, come flying down and, and capture Richmond. So he had to wait, essentially, at Culpeper Courthouse, which was just to the, just to the, um, the east, I should say, to the west of, of where the Federal Army was to see what would uh, General Hooker's response be. Hooker being, uh, Fighting Joe Hooker was the commander of the Federal Army at that time. What do you think of Hooker? Well, Hooker was an interesting guy. Um, we know of Hooker because, uh, most of us know about Hooker because uh, the name Hooker comes from Hooker. He had a, a propensity for bringing women into camp and um, but he was very effective as a corps commander, very effective as a division commander, um, very political, and uh, disliked greatly by many men in the Army because he orchestrated the removal of the prior uh, commander, um, Ambrose Burnside, and it was strictly political. Even though Burnside has, had dramatically lost the Battle of Fredericksburg, a terrible battle if you're a federal uh, soldier, where all of these charges up on uh, a fortified hill, fortified by the Confederates, um, orchestrated the removal of, of Burnside. He became the commanding general, all spit and polish. He was, um, he was going to take on Lee's army. He was going to beat it. Had a very aggressive plan at the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, first day went pretty well, and then he started to lose his nerve, um, and then everything just fell apart. Uh, Jackson, Stonewall Jackson's flank attack, and actually almost had a nervous breakdown as a result of it. The problem with, with Lincoln is he wanted to get rid of him, but because he was so well connected politically, he couldn't. He had to wait until Hooker did something either terrible that other than the Battle of Chancellorsville to be removed or um, that Hooker would resign. But one thing that Hooker did was he took an army and he really built, built this army to be a, a wonderful fighting force. You know, we, we look at the, uh, the Confederate soldiers and the Union soldiers, and, and yes, the Confederates won a lot of early battles, but the, the, the quality of the fighting men were comparable by the time we got to Gettysburg, and he helped to do that. Did Lincoln not like Hooker because he lost the Battle of Chancellorsville? I think he was frustrated. I don't think he, he disliked them for that reason, although I think he was frustrated uh, knowing how many troops Lee had and how many troops Hooker had. But I, I, he did not like the political intrigue and he didn't like uh, a general becoming so politically inclined because once you get strong allies in the Congress and the, in the, um, in, even on the cabinet, you've got some real problems. And so he felt very uncomfortable uh, with that kind of situation. Now we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to ask about, uh, while we're talking about the generals, when Hooker was finally replaced, there was a rumor among the soldiers that McClellan was coming back and he was wildly popular among the soldiers. Why did everybody love McClellan so much? McClellan was a soldier soldier, um, took great care of his men, and they knew that he was not going to commit them to um, charges that would, would be devastating to, to the units. Um, Burnside and other men, um, they seemed to not have the kind of care, the concern that um, 
that McClellan had. And so he was, he was popular, he was visible, um, he cared about the men and the men knew it. And so while he did a great job building the army, he did a, a terrible job in terms of the battlefield. Uh, he was very cautious. The Battle of Antietam that I mentioned earlier, um, when he literally had an army double the size of Lee's army, um, he had the orders. He had the he captured the general orders. He knew where Lee's army was. You know, they were all dispersed. He could have come in there and destroyed Lee's army piece by piece. But he was so cautious, and and that's the general that Lincoln just was very unhappy with, because this was a man who really could have ended the war right then, and um, didn't take advantage of it. But the men didn't care about that. The men cared about. This, this, this general who cared about them, who was very de magnetic, and, um, you know, and took good care of them. Now, getting back to uh, Lee's invasion of the north, when, when they started heading north, how did they know the, the lay of the land? How did they know what, what roadmaps did they have? Well, um, for Lee's army, he had wonderful maps. You know, they're coming from uh, Virginia, many of these men. Um, it's interesting, in the winter of 1862-1863, I think it was around February, uh, Lee ordered uh, one of the map makers to actually make a map of the Shenandoah Valley into the Cumberland Valley of Pennsylvania to encompass Harrisburg, uh, Chambersburg, parts of Maryland. And even back then in February, um, he was starting to plan for this invasion. So the Confederates uh, knew these, knew the the, uh, the roads well, and they'd pick up guides. You know, there were local guides who were very sympathetic to the uh, to the Confederacy and they would guide them as well. So they had no trouble getting around. Did each army know where the other was? Well, that was the big problem. Uh, Lee knew, well, it, and they took turns not knowing where the armies were, quite frankly. Um, it doesn't seem it could be easy to lose an army of 75,000. You would think that, but it was interesting because what happened in, in the early phases of this campaign was uh, Lee, who's very aggressive, took a, a desperate gamble. And what he did was he had three Confederate corps, each of them about 25,000 men. He's, he pulled out two out of the three corps, and he moves them to the west toward Culpeper Courthouse. Um, the other corps, Hill's corps, AP Hill corps, corps, corps is left in front of the uh, federal forces. And he's hoping that uh, the federals don't see what's going on. Well, they did know, see what was going on. They saw camps that were empty. They saw dust rising in the... Um, in the distance. And so uh, he sent up balloons, that didn't really do anything. And f he sent his cavalry over. And um, you know they were unsuccessful. He sent troops over, he sent a federal corps, his largest corps, sixth corps, across the Rappahannock River to engage the Confederates to see what would happen. And initially they had success and then they were pushed back. So he was very, very frustrated, had no idea where Lee was, had a f inkling that, you know, knowingly, very aggressive, knowing that probably he's somewhere where he shouldn't be. And so what happened was he was so desperate, he sent his, all of his cavalry, some of, the, uh, some of his um, infantry, over to the area of, um, of Culpeper Courthouse. And the largest battle, cavalry battle, in, the, in U.S. history was fought at the battle uh, at uh, Brandy Station. But initially, they drove Jeb Stewart's uh, forces back, the federal troops did. Um, but then the Confederates' uh, forces, their defense stiffened, and ultimately uh, Pleasanton, the Federal Cavalry, was pushed back. The bottom line was there, were no, there was no intelligence. They weren't able to see what was behind the cavalry. 
Um, and you find this time and time again. They didn't have spies? No, not in Virginia. They weren't getting that kind of information. Um, and then what was happening, though, is Virginia, as, as Lee is moving north, he's assuming that uh, Hooker is still staying in the Falmouth area around, you know, Fredericksburg, when in fact they were starting, the federal troops were starting to move north. And it was quite as, came as quite a surprise when he found out that they were moving north as he's moving north. Was that just by coincidence that they decided to move north at the same time? Well, no, actually they were both moving north. Um, Lee started, and it was what's fascinating as, as I researched the book was how far ahead Lee was. Lee's troops were actually across the Potomac River heading into Maryland before the federal troops actually left uh, central Virginia. And if they had become more aggressive and really started to do forced marches, there's no question they could have captured Harrisburg much easier. As it was, uh, Lee wanted to wait. He was hesitant. He was afraid. You know, what was, what was going to be happening with Hooker? Because remember, the worst thing that can happen to, um, to Lee is if Richmond falls. And he had to make sure that Hooker wasn't going to drive south and take Richmond. And uh, so when he was certain that wasn't going to happen, then he became more aggressive in, in marching north. Would that have been the worst thing for Richmond to fall? Because it, I, I don't have it marked here, but I, I thought I picked up in your book that the Union, maybe it was Hooker, said that Lee's army was the target and not Richmond. Well, that's a good point, Brian. Um, actually, a little bit different. Um, Hooker, when, he's, when he has an inkling that Lee is now starting to move toward Washington, is saying, you know what? I think I can drive south and I think I can capture Virginia or um, Richmond. And it was Lincoln who said, nope, ah. you're wrong. It's not Richmond, it's Lee's army that you're after. And constantly, but, but he didn't get the message. It took several uh, telegrams for Hooker finally to realize that um, he needed to, go after, after, needed to go after Lee's army. You know, Lincoln was concerned because here is Lee's army moving north, could capture Washington. And again, you know, it's, we're talking about the psychology of all of this. You know, in and of itself, if Richmond were to fall, not that big a deal, but psychologically, it would be a major blow to the Confederacy that's still trying to get support from abroad, you know, from England, from France. They didn't give up hope, even though after the 1862 and the, the, after the first invasion, you know, that really struck a, a deadly blow to all of those hopes. They hoped that if they won a battle on northern soil, that still there could be English recognition of the Confederacy. At what point was Lee's army thought to be actually in the north? When they entered Maryland? Yeah, right. It was, um, they were moving north, they had crossed the river. Um, see, they knew what was happening, uh, Hooker knew what was happening because in Winchester there was a division under Robert Mil Milroy of 9,000 troops. And one of the first actions that occurred in this campaign, military actions, is when uh, he was actually Moray was pushed out of Winchester, and there were some other troops in Berryville. And so they, they saw these actions, and they knew what, where Lee's army was at that point. Um, but as they got into Maryland, there were more spies, there was more communication, and they started to realize uh, more forcefully what, what Lee was planning on doing. How were they received by the locals? Well, it depends. Um, in the case of, you know, you, you have the differences there. In the case of Lee's army, Obviously, when he's marching north in Virginia, no problem. When he's in southern Maryland, you know, again, there was a lot of southern sympathy. But as he's moving north into, you know, northern, in, northern uh, Maryland, into Pennsylvania, uh, everything changed. You know, a lot of hostility. 
But the reality was most of the citizens in Pennsylvania were, were horrified, you know, petrified. You know, imagine here you are, you have a prosperous farm, and you look out your window and you see 10,000 troops marching by, you know, and, and what do you think? You think that they're going to burn the place, they're going to kill you, they're going to do the horrible things, which never happened. So the, the citizens, you know, their reaction changed depending on where the armies were. When the federal armies were in Virginia, again, you know, were not uh, well received. But when they marched up into Pennsylvania and into northern Maryland, you know, wild enthusiasm, as you can imagine, the saviors had arrived. So when they got to Pennsylvania, they didn't plunder and pillage? What did they do? Well, it's interesting because Lee was adamant about this. He, he issued two general orders, 72 and 73, within a few days of each other. When the, federal, when the Confederate troops were about to go into Pennsylvania on the 22nd of, um, of June. Now, this is a time when the, conf when the Union Army is still down in Virginia, northern Virginia. Here you have Confederate divisions up in uh, Pennsylvania. And he issued these orders saying, listen, we are not going to plunder. We are not going to steal. If you take anything, you're going to pay for it. Now, the reality, where they would use Confederate script, which was basically worthless. Uh, homeowners and store owners would take the script, but, you know, they knew it was worthless. Um, but he was very, very clear. We are going to conduct ourselves in a very professional manner. And this was a reaction, partly, you know, Lee was an aristocrat, you know, came from um, a family that had what we call blue blood, and he wasn't going to put up with that. But also, it was a reaction to, he knew how the men were feeling. You know, they had seen the devastation that the federal troops had committed in, in Virginia. And it was interesting because in the book, uh, there are a number of diaries and letters uh, about these Confederate soldiers who were all set to do all these unspeakable things um, to pay back the federal troops. Um, and they were, they were very, very unhappy with Lee because they wanted that opportunity. They saw this as a way that they could, you know, restock their, um, uh, their wares, um, you know, f fill up their, their stomachs, and it really didn't work out that way. Um, you know, there were guards, there was no pillow, very little pillaging, and what there was was really minor. So Lee's army was in, crossing into Pennsylvania, and Hooker's army was still down in Virginia. How, how many days separation, how many miles a day could they travel? Oh, the, uh, well, that's the interesting part, because in the case of Lee's army, they were gradually moving north. So when they, so finally, when Lee's army made it to the battlefield, they were fairly fresh. The, the federal troops, on the other hand, it was horrendous for them, because it's always, they're, they're catching up, you know, they're, they're marching horrendously. So, for instance, um, it starts off with um, about the 12th of June, is when now Lee starts his invasion the, the night of the third, third, fourth, and that's when he's starting to send his troops north. It's not until the twelfth that Hooker says, "Oh, I better start moving north. I better get my troops between Washington and Lee's army, which is moving in the Shenandoah Valley." Force marches. You're talking 20, 25 miles a day. You're talking about 90 degrees temperatures. You're talking about high humidity. Men dropping out in droves. Um, so that, that march from Fredericksburg area up to the area of Washington, it took from the 12th to the 18th, but it was, it was a tremendous, tremendous uh, series of marches. I want to read something you have written in here. This is June 14th for the 12th Corps, which is the Union 
Army. The all-night march of the 12th Corps was a nightmare. Dense pine groves on both sides of the road caused the darkness to be as thick as that of a subterranean dungeon. Constant halts were necessary as wagons tipped over after hitting ruts and gullies in the road. Staff officers riding to the side of the roads often slid down deep gullies. Uh, how many hours a day would they do this and how much rest would they get? Very little. Um, in some cases, they'd be marching 24 hours. And in one case, in the case of um, the Federal Sixth Corps, uh, they actually marched about 36 hours with very little rest. Um, it was just tremendous, and, and, and it's hard to imagine how these troops were able to function when they got to the battlefield. Yeah, how could they do that, first of all, and second of all, how could they fight when they got there? Right, and, and it's interesting because um, the Confederate troops, the Federal troops commented the same way, that when they, were, when they stepped foot in Pennsylvania, they changed. You know, it was their home. They were fighting for uh, their families, for a cause they really believed in. Uh, it changed. You know, in Virginia, it was a little bit different in that regard. If they lost in Virginia, that was common. But to lose in Pennsylvania, that was a whole different matter. And so you had a lot of adrenaline. Adrenaline. You had letters from, from home telling the troops, you know, uh, you know, you really have to do your part here. Um, and so it, it, it energized the men, and the men fought in a way that they had never fought before, quite frankly. At what point on the map did Lee cross over into Pennsylvania? Well, he's crossing over in, in the western part around Hagerstown, um, around Falling, um, falling, <coughs> falling area, I, I, excuse me. But um, so he's marching north to Hagerstown, whereas, and, and mar north in that area, so western um, Maryland, whereas uh, in the case of the federal troops, they're to the east, okay? They're crossing more toward Washington, D.C., and they're heading up toward Frederick. So you have the, the Confederates to the west, you have the Union troops moving toward the central to the eastern portion of Maryland. And, they, and so far apart that they were not interacting at all. When would Pennsylvanians have realized there was an invasion on? Just by looking out the window and seeing a lot well, of gray? Well, it's interesting, Brian, because the governor of um, Pennsylvania, Governor Curtin, was very, very concerned even when the Confederate troops were still in Virginia because he had seen Lee invade um, Maryland, invade the North the year before, and he wasn't so certain that it wasn't going to happen again. So even early on, when there's still, um, uh, all the Confederates are still in Virginia, he's issuing a call for, for troops, for militia. He got none, because the, the Confederate threat was so far away, you know, it was so distant, that no one took it seriously. Now, when the troops started to move into Maryland, and what really set it off was on the 15th of June, um, something happened that changed everything. And that was about 11 o'clock in the evening. Um, 3,000 Confederate cavalry thundered into Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Now, most of the Confederate troops were still in Maryland at this time and in, and in Virginia. And here all of a sudden you have 3,000 Confederate uh, soldiers. And they occupied it on the 15th, the 16th. They didn't leave it until the 17th. And you can imagine, um, if you live not just in that area, but anywhere in Pennsylvania, you're horrified because the threat is not in Virginia. It's not distant. It's right there. Then more calls for troops, and suddenly people start to answer. In fact, uh, as I said in the book, about 36,000 uh, Pennsylvanians answered the call, join the militia um, during uh, this campaign. 
Now, most of them did not become, you know, were not actively engaged, but still, they knew the threat was close enough and they really need to, to get involved. Let me ask you about something I didn't know about before. You have here a new military department was created, the Department of the Susquehanna, mm -hmm. which included all of Pennsylvania east of Johnstown. General Darius Couch, a distinguished officer who had commanded the Second Corps, commanded the new department. Never a fan of Hooker, the fiasco at Chancellor, Chancellorsville was the final straw. He resigned from the Army and was given the new military department. So he quit the, what, the Army of uh, the Army Potomac? Of the Potomac and he was assigned to this new, so was this another army that was kind of like the Army of the Potomac? Well, it's interesting because th this, is, this is a career general, uh, General Couch, um, very distinguished. And he was so upset with Hooker. You know, he, he didn't like him personally, he didn't like him professionally, got to a point where he said, I just can't do it anymore. And he resigned his commission, not his commission, but he, he resigned his command and they gave him a piece of land essentially, you know, that chunk of Pennsylvania, no troops though. And so there was a call for volunteers and the people that come forward are all the cashiered um, military officers who were not, who had not done well in the battlefield. They came forward, they, they were thrilled to have an opportunity, but there were no enlisted men. And it's interesting because Milroy, you know, who was defeated at, um, around the Winchester area, Stevenson's uh, depot, um, his remnants, when he started to move north to get away from Lee's army, uh, actually went into Pennsylvania, into that military district, and um, Couch was so desperate for troops that he actually harbored, you know, those troops, even though the command, Milroy's commander wanted Milroy and the troops back toward Baltimore. He's making excuses so he could keep these veterans with him. A lot of, a lot of militia, um, but he was desperate. Couch was desperate because here he had Lee's army, he knew at least 50,000 men, maybe more, moving north, and he really had no troops to, to combat you know, this threat. Did anything ever come of the Department of the Susquehanna? Not really, not really. Um, you know, there, there were um, obviously engagements fought there, but, uh, and Couch remained as the commander of the, uh, the area, but um, after the Gettysburg campaign, it, it really was not important at that point. I have to ask you about something while I'm thinking about it. The, the persistent rumor you hear from people is that Lee was heading for Gettysburg because they had a shoe factory right. there. Is there anything to that? Um, probably not. What happened was, you know, first of all, he wasn't going toward Gettysburg. He was really looking for Harrisburg. And on um, the high point of the campaign was probably June 28th. And that was when uh, the Second Corps, composed of uh, General Ewell and 25,000 troops, Lee said, okay, fine. On the 28th, you have now to go ahead to capture Harrisburg. But this was a time when um, me, uh, the, the Federal Army was really moving northward very quickly, and he realized that he couldn't do that. But, so the, but the, the shoe factory, um, really what happened was earlier on, about the 26th or so, um, another Confederate division under Jubal Early marched through Gettysburg, and any supplies that were there, he took at that point. And so there weren't any supplies there. So it really was a, a persistent rumor as to the shoes. I, I personally, I don't think it was that. Um, as much as scrounging up for supplies, always looking for supplies, looking for federal troops, things of that nature. Now you also have a note here on the June 28th, and I might jump around a little bit here, but uh, at Wrightsville, there was a bridge over the Susquehanna that was yes. burned by the locals or by Union mm -hmm. folks defending. You say early was just a Jubal Early, the Confederate general, was 
bitterly disappointed about the loss of the bridge as it destroyed his plans to capture and ransom Lancaster and then march on to Harrisburg. Right. Is that, was that a pivotal moment? Not really, not really. It would have been. Um, remember, on the 28th, Ewell has the go-ahead. He's got three divisions. What he planned on doing is taking two divisions and crossing the uh, Susquehanna and moving on Harrisburg, essentially from the west. Now, without orders, you had Jubal Early, who had captured uh, Gettysburg, who was moving along toward Wrightsville. He was going to cross the bridge over Wrightsville and then take, try to take Harrisburg from the opposite side, from the east, so it would be like a pincer movement. Um, but by the time that happened, uh, Lee realized that the Federal Army was moving forward very, very quickly, and that's when he started to concentrate. So if this had happened a couple days before, yes, but it was, it was, it was too late at this point. Uh, I want to take a little break here where Lee is uh, about to enter Pennsylvania, but I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. Mm -hmm. You are, uh, what do you do for your day job? I'm a college president. I'm at Sussex County Community College. Where's and, that? Um, that's in Sussex County, Pennsylvania, or New Jersey. Actually, most people don't realize. It's, uh, for Pennsylvania viewers, um, it's, in, it's right across the river from Pike County and uh, Milford. Um, and so we have the beautiful environments such as the, the mountains and the, the um, rivers and hills that you find in similar to Pike County and the Poconos. And I've been uh, college president for about two and a half years. And before, you know, I was academic dean at Montgomery County Community College uh, for seven years and have worked in higher education for about 30 years. Do you still teach? A little bit, yes. Um, still teach an online course at Montgomery County Community College. I'm able to do that in Sussex County, which is nice. Um, I'm not a historian, by the way, by training. I have a doctorate in zoology, and the online course I teach is in uh, environmental biology. But I have a passion for teaching, and so this lets me um, you know, maintain that passion while being an administrator, which is also a passion. When did you get interested in history? Well, that's, an, well, that's a fascinating question because when I was 13, um, that's when the interest uh, started. Started collecting books, and then as I became, um, when, when it got closer to becoming, um, or, or deciding on a career and going to, going to college, it was uh, being a physician, becoming a biology major, um, going to college, went to Westchester State College back then, and uh, decided I really didn't want to become a physician, but I really enjoyed teaching and I would teach biology. So went on for a master's, went on for a doctorate. Uh, first 11 years of my um, professional experience was as a full-time faculty member in the Midwest. Meanwhile, during that time, all of the history interest waned. I had all these books in boxes and they would go with me from place to place every time we changed jobs. And my wife would say, well, you know, you're not opening the books. Why don't you just get rid of them? And, and I couldn't do it. Can't get rid of books. No. Well, I was <laughs> sold them, but I just couldn't do it. I lived in Savannah, Georgia, which is rich in history. Um, didn't open the books. You know, I was still interested in, in my field of zoology and higher education. And it was fascinating because when I came back finally to Pennsylvania um, in 1993, within six months, I said to myself, gee, what's in those book boxes? opened them up, started reading, and that reignited my interest. So I, you know, in the books it says I have a long interest in the Civil War. Really, it was, it was kind of short because it was really from the age of 13 to about 18, and then from the ages of, let's say, 43 to the current time. What were the books that were in those boxes? Oh, all kinds of memoirs, um, all Civil War books. Um, 
memoirs, history of different battles, things of that nature. You know, uh, we're talking about maybe eight to nine boxes of books that were very carefully packed. You know, when you're 13, 14 years old, every book you buy is a treasure because you're counting your pennies to purchase them. I wish I'd bought more because back then they were a lot cheaper. Uh, this is not your first appearance on this program. You were on here a couple years ago for this book, Stopping Pickett, the History of the Philadelphia Brigade. Um, can you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of who the Philadelphia Brigade was? Yeah, this was a, a brigade that was recruited in the Philadelphia area for the most part. Uh, the reason I, I was interested in them was um, Pickett's charge right, in the, right where Pickett is aiming is the Philadelphia Brigade. And I did a, a little bit more research and found out there was really nothing current up on them in terms of their history. And so decided to do a, a full history of them. There is also this one, which is a little bit different. It's a guide to uh, the battlefield, a guided tour. What's, uh, what's this book all about? Well, actually, this is what really started all of the other publications. Um, I was, when I was 13 years old, 1963, it was the um, centennial of the battle. My parents took me to the battlefield, and that uh, book in the first edition was very popular. It was a tour guide. When people went, they would buy it. There weren't audio tapes. Um, there were guides and the like, and it was by Stackpole and Nye. Well, so it was written by General Stackpole yes, himself. Indeed. And what happened then was uh, when I went back in 19, probably 1995, I was surprised that there wasn't really anything back then in terms of tour guides. So people would come to the battlefield, they would buy books, they'd get guides, etc. And I called Stackpole on a whim and I said, how would you like someone to simply revise it because it was out of print? Uh, and they said, sure. So um, I thought it was just going to be some fine tuning, you know, change the, the tour a little bit. I had to rewrite the whole thing because um, the writing style back in the 50s was quite different, you know, more of a passive voice um, than it is today. And so really rewrote it. And from writing that or rewriting that book, then I did the Philadelphia Brigade because it just fit very nicely. Had anything changed about the battlefield or about what was known about the battlefield between the time the, the book first came out? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, it is amazing how much is being written about Gettysburg. There's a, there's a magazine that comes out twice a year called Gettysburg Magazine that has professional articles, um, you know, about 300 pages, books galore, and there's all kinds of research continually going on. But in terms of the actual battlefield park, they changed the, uh, the route a bit. And so it really had to be updated. Otherwise, people would have gotten totally lost. What keeps your interest going in the Civil War? I mean, don't you ever think, okay, enough of the Civil War, I want to do something else. Study, I don't know, the French and Indian War or Cresap's War or something like that. There's just something about the, uh, the Civil War that really um, captures my interest. Um, I don't know what it is. When I go to Gettysburg, it's almost a spiritual uh, experience for me, no matter how many times I go, and I do go frequently. Um, I can feel it. You know, I can feel the, the horror. I can feel the valor. I, I can, it, it, the ghosts are there, and, and many people uh, will feel that whether they've studied it or they haven't studied it. And so that's why I primarily concentrated on Gettysburg um, for that reason, because it, it was a pivotal time in, in American history. There's so much known about it. There's so much research that one can do about it. And the other piece of it, quite frankly, is when you go to the Battlefield Park, you see so many people. There are about two million visitors a year. And my feeling is, if I'm going to go to all the trouble 
learning more about this, this very important part of American history. I'm going to write about it. Wouldn't it be nice if someone were to read what I write as opposed to something very esoteric that maybe very few people would actually pick up and read? So your books are for popular audiences as opposed to the academic Most of audience. them. Most of them are. Um, the ones that you indicated um, are certainly those. You know? and, and I write them from the standpoint of, of someone who, who doesn't have a strong background in the Civil War. Um, the Philadelphia Brigade you know, starts from when they were being recruited in the streets of Philadelphia to the time that they returned in 1864. And you don't have to really understand the strategy or, or the commanders or, or anything else because it's really more of a human interest story. You know, it's letters, it's diaries, and it, it's, it, it, to me it, it, it's compelling that you, you, you form bonds with the soldiers and you see the battle, you see the camp life through their eyes. And, and one of the things that really always does tear at me is um, I'll go to the War College Library and I'll be reading uh, a series of letters from a soldier to parents or a, or a wife uh, starting in 1861 and it'll continue on and all of a sudden there are no more letters. And you see a tag saying killed at the Battle of Gettysburg or Fredericksburg or whatever and you form an attachment. You know, you know them, you know their likes, their dislikes, you know how they're feeling and it's like a, a personal friend has passed away. It, it, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's very moving. When you go to Gettysburg now, do you go with a specific purpose in mind, or you just go to kind of hang around? A couple reasons. Um, oftentimes I'll go for book signings. Um, I'll go, well, like for instance, I'll do tours. Um, I'll be taking people from Sussex County over and, and uh, explain the battle. We actually rent a school bus. It waits for us at the Seclorama Center. Hop on the bus and off we go for about four or five hours around the battlefield. Um, a lot of times it'll be to use their library in the battlefield park. A wonderful library, wonderful people who staff it. Um, and so uh, a variety of reasons. Seldom do I go um, to just hang out, so to speak, as much as you know something else is bringing me there. Like for instance, after this interview, I'll probably go there because it's so close. Uh, you remember the first time you went? Yeah, when, with my parents in 1963. They, they took me... Um, the 100th anniversary of the battle. That's right. And they didn't know what to make of it. You know, um, here was a, uh, their, their son who had a passion for the Civil War and for Gettysburg, desperately wanted to go, and as good parents would be, they, uh, they took me and were very patient as, as we, we uh, hired a guide and, and drove around the battlefield. I ask you about this book. Now, this book is published the same year as your newest book. I mean, it's also a new book. And this is bigger than all your other books combined, I think. Yes. It's 700 pages, something like that. The Brigades of Gettysburg. If someone buys this, what do they get? Uh, it, you might think it's an encyclopedia, um, but it really isn't. Basically, what I've done there is to take every brigade, and there are almost 100 of them in the Confederate armies, Army and in the, in the Federal Army, and to follow what they did from June 28th as they're approaching the battlefield up to the time that they leave the battlefield. Because what I was finding is so many people have a strong interest in Gettysburg, but they only know what's going on at certain times. So for instance, I always talk about the Iron Brigade, very active on July the 1st, um, on McPherson Ridge, on Seminary Ridge, uh, just a battered unit. But then, then you lose track of them. Most books, nothing after that. 
But what happened to these men? Where were they on July 2nd and July 3rd? And it turns out on July 2nd, they, uh, at least the 6th Wisconsin, uh, had a major role in saving Culp's Hill, which if it fell, it could have caused the, the defeat of the Federal Army. So basically, it takes each of these brigades and follows them through, and again through the eyes of the men, you know, using a lot of letters and diaries. I want people to, to feel um, the battle, you know, not just to, to read it in terms of uh, what, what the author thinks what was happening, to, to weave as much as I possibly can of, of, the, of, the, of the firsthand accounts. So is this one a book that you could read cover to cover, or is it more uh, designed as a reference book? Um, I think people who are interested in the battle certainly would read it, could read it cover to cover. Um, oftentimes, when I started writing it, you know, there was that, that battle that I had, that, that discussion in my own head. You know, should it be more of an encyclopedia? Or should it be something that's highly readable? I think most people are going to pick it up and say, gee, I, I, and pick at different brigades and say, okay, today I want to learn more about what was happening on uh, July 1 around uh, Hope's Hill, for instance. Um, and so they might get to Johnson's division, Confederate division, or might get to the um, Wadsworth's division and pick out from there. Um, but it's a different book than the others, which I think is more along the lines of, of people who are really have a stronger interest in Gettysburg. How long did it take you to put this one together? A couple years. See, I'm, I, I write very, very quickly, um, and maybe that's a problem at times because sometimes you have to let it cook. You know, sometimes a stew needs to boil a bit. Uh, I'll get up anywhere from 3.30 to 4 o'clock in the morning, and I will write weekdays till 6.30 and weekends till 8 o'clock in the morning. And my wife knows that's my time, 8 o'clock in the morning. And then after 8 o'clock in the morning on weekends, I belong to her. Um, but that's significant chunks of time, you know, having four, four and a half hours on a Saturday and a Sunday and a few hours on weekdays to try to get it done. I'm a morning person anyway. And I think for me, a lot of, of, of my vitality is related to stimulation. You know, I have a lot of stimulation as college president, but this really gives me the opportunity to step back and, and get out of my own shell, you know, and my own problems and learn about what's going on and what happened during a particular time. I love to do research, I love to write, and it's a great combination. Um, I wish that's what it all was. Unfortunately, the worst part for me, and I think you'll find this for most authors, is, is the, the publishing components, you know, dealing with publishers, dealing with editors, dealing with delays, dealing with coming up with an index. Um, I never realized how terrible it was to, to prepare an index. And yet, you know, a book without an index or a good index is a failed book from my point of view. Did you do the index yourself? On the ones, uh, the early ones, yes. The one uh, that you just mentioned on Brigades of Gettysburg, they actually hired a professional who indexed it. And I was prepared to do it, but I wasn't thrilled about indexing a, a 700-page book, as you can imagine. How do you do it? Do you go through and underline the, the keywords and then just, yep. just manually? I mean, there's no way to uh, right? automate it. Oh, no. Well, not, not the way I do it. So I'll have page after page. So I'll have um, you know A through E and, and et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll go through it, and I'll start writing down terms, you know, rivers, names of people. And then page numbers after that, and then you know continually cross-reference. 
but it's, it's, then it becomes more difficult because you just can't have um, 10 numbers, page numbers. They'll say, oh, no, now if you get to that point, now you have to subdivide it. Um, so you'll have subdivisions, and it becomes finer, and it's, oh, gosh. You know, so if you don't like indexing, it, it becomes horrendous, as you can imagine. Now, when we left, last uh, left Lee, he was just crossing over into Pennsylvania. But, oh, I want to ask you before we get back to Lee. You talked about Lee's strategy for winning the war, taking Harrisburg and possibly Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. did, did the North have a strategy for winning the war, an overall strategy? Well, it, it's interesting because um, initially it was always Richmond, always take Richmond. And then for the first time, Lincoln, during this campaign, started to say, no, it's Lee's army. You, we, just, we defeat Lee's army, we're going to get Richmond anyway. Because the Confederate armies to the west were not doing nearly as well. Um, Grant, U.S. Grant, later on in 1864, when he came east, embraced that idea as well. And he was able to defeat um, Lee's army and ultimately capture Richmond. So Lee was not in charge of the entire Confederate military, but not just at a this specific... Stage. Was he later on? Yes, later on he was finally put in charge of all the Confederate armies, but by that time it was too late. Uh, massive amounts of the Confederacy were in federal hands. Uh, the armies were just a shell of what they were. It was just a matter of time. Um, you know, there, it's interesting. Um, at one point after the war, up to the middle of this century, or the last century, I should say, 1900s, Lee was a god. You know, you didn't have to be in the south. In the north, everyone respected him, considered to be the greatest American general of all times. Now, history is being rewritten. Now, Lee has some warts. And, and you look at it, and it's true. Uh, the number of men that he lost through his aggressiveness was just amazing. You know, um, Gettysburg and Pickett's Charge. You know, did that really have to happen? Could he have tried to flank? And even on uh, day two, July the 2nd, uh, Hood wanted him not to go against the Round Tops directly or um, Devil's Den, wanted to flank around. Lee wouldn't hear anything of it. Malvern Hill, I mean, there's so many battles uh, the Seven Days Battles in 1862 in front of Richmond, a very aggressive Lee, thousands upon thousands of casualties that may not have had to happen. And this is a, this is a, an, a, a country, a confederacy, that could not afford to lose these kinds of men. So, so it's interesting in that regard. Is it fair to go back and reevaluate and, and knock somebody down a few notches if after a hundred and some odd years they've been a hero? What's interesting, I think that's what makes history so exciting, you know, and, and you know, sometimes we, we hear about, um, not sometimes, all the time, you know, kids in school say, ah, oh, history is old, it's boring. No, it's vital because we're always reinterpreting, we're always getting additional information, we're always learning more about it, and so the, the, the freshness is always there. You know, I know that I will, you know, no one will ever know as much about Gettysburg as they could because constantly new letters, new diaries, new interpretations are being developed, and that's what makes it exciting. Well, then that leads to the next question. Is, is the reinterpretation of Lee necessarily any more accurate than anybody thought all along, or is it just a trend that, well, you know, we counted him as a hero for the last 100 years, so let's change it and count him as something else? I think and, it is the and the trend? Definitely, definitely. I think it'll, you know, it'll, it'll, the pendulum probably will go back in a few years and it'll swing back and forth. But really, that's what's exciting, that now you have a forum. In the past, you didn't have too many people debating Lee. You know, Lee was the god. But now you have heated arguments in print, 
and face-to-face, -face. And, and that's exciting, to have that kind of stimulation. Who is history treating more kindly these days? I mean, whose star is on the rise in history? People like Mead. You know, Mead uh, was really vilified. A Pennsylvanian. Uh, oh, out. definitely. You know, a, a very fascinating character. You know, took over the army um, early morning of, of uh, June 28th. Thought he was going to be cashiered when, when um, Colonel Hardy came into his tent. Thought he was actually going to be relieved of command. Had no conception that he would have actually been promoted to command the army. Always wanted to command the army. Um, and would write to his wife saying, I'm just not politically connected enough. I'm never going to be able to do it. And so here he is in 1863 now, given what he really wanted. And you know what they say, the worst thing that can happen to you is getting what you want. Um, you know, vilified by Lincoln after the battle because he was not aggressive in going after Lee. Uh, was content to have beaten Lee, driving him south. He felt that was good enough. And quite frankly, um, even in 1864, he commanded the Army of the Potomac. But when Grant came in, then Grant really did take over. And so Meade has always been pushed to the side as, as someone who was less than able. And I think people are now reevaluating his contributions and saying, you know what, maybe he did take the best approach. And certainly at Gettysburg, he did take the best approach in terms of, you know, find the hills, settle in, and then just beat back all of these attacks that Lee threw against, uh, against his army. That was Meade's idea? Oh, yes, right. Uh, Meade was always a, um, a cautious general, a defensive kind of general. And that's, you know, it's interesting because uh, James Longstreet, you know, uh, Lee's right-hand uh, general of the First Corps, wanted Lee to do the same thing, find high ground, you know, take it, hold it, because he knew that the Federal Army could not allow a Confederate army to s stay in Pennsylvania. And Lee said, no, we're going to, we're going to go after them and we're going to beat them and then we're going to continue north. So it's interesting, it wasn't just Meade who felt that way, it was also some Confederate uh, soldiers who felt that way, that way as well. So Lee, we're still trying to follow Lee into Pennsylvania. At what point did Lee set foot in Pennsylvania for the first time? Oh, it was about um, the 27th or 28th or so. Of uh, he, was, he was lagging behind with Longstreet. And, um, where was it? If you want to go there and step where Lee first stepped foot in. Well, actually, he's coming up around um, uh, Greenville, around a ch Chamber. You know, he's moving up to a Chambersburg. And actually spent a lot of time in Chambersburg before he started to move toward the Gettysburg area. Coming up I-81? Yes, in that area, definitely. Oh, when did they set fire to Chambersburg? Oh, that was back in 1864. So that oh, was, was the, the following, following year. year. Oh. Right. Oh, Lee would not have condoned that. And that was a situation where um, a Confederate, um, some said he was a real renegade, um, Commander McCausland, came into Chambersburg um, and threatened the, the town officials that he would burn the town if they did not uh, give him what he wanted. And ultimately, he did burn the town. Um, you can imagine that Lee was very unhappy, but McCausland did not re uh, report to Lee. And a lot of it was reprisals. You know, here was uh, General Hunter down federal commander um, in the Shenandoah Valley who's setting fire to private homes, to fields, and this was also retribution in that regard as well. Now, as the, all, all the armies were converging on Gettysburg, were there little battles along the way? Not too many. Um, you talked about Wrightsville. Um, there was a skirmish at Wrightsville, primarily between um, a, a hardened Confederate brigade, uh, John Gordon's brigade, 
and these uh, militiamen. Also, we had um, around Gettysburg, I believe it was on the 26th of, um, of June, you had a, uh, a very large militia uh, regiment, the 26th Pennsylvania militia, coming up against a full Confederate brigade, battle-hardened, and as you can imagine, uh, they didn't do very well. What was fascinating about that, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, captured about 175 of these Pennsylvanians, wonderful, you know, blue uniforms. Per they looked like perfect soldiers, but they had never fired a gun before. So here's this grizzled old General Early, little guy, whiskers, you know, spitting tobacco. He, he lines up these, these militiamen who had just been captured, and they're afraid he's gonna, they're going to all be shot uh, in the town square in, Pennsylvania, in, in, in Gettysburg. And he says to him, listen, you've got to stop dressing up as soldiers. You're not soldiers. I'm going to let you go, and you go back to your mamas, because if you stay in this, uh, in this kind of uh, situation, you're going to get hurt. And they scattered very, very quickly, as you can imagine. Um, there were skirmishes uh, between the cavalry, you know, uh, at the mountain passes early on in Virginia, where Lee's army is moving up the Shenandoah Valley. And you had, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains that were actually shielding the view of the, um, of the federal troops. So you had on the east side of the Blue Ridge Mountains, you had the federal troops. You had on the, on the uh, west side, you had Lee's army. And, and you know, the, the federal troops, Hooker, didn't know where Lee was because he couldn't get through the, those mountains. But there were gaps. So Lee had his cavalry under Jeb Stewart at those gaps. Pleasanton, the, the federal commander, uh, cavalry commander, is trying to force those gaps so he can get beyond them to see where the Confederate infantry was. So a lot of cavalry battles were going on as well. And also about a mile from where we sit, there is a sign that says, uh, is it Jenkins Cavalry? Yes. Was the, uh, the northernmost battle of the Civil War. Yes, that's uh, right. What happened there? Well, he got within eight miles. This is about the 28th of, um, of June. He's scouting the approaches to, um, to Harrisburg. Um, what's happening is Lee is now about ready to give orders to Ewell, take Harrisburg, and Ewell needed so, uh, some cavalry to scout the approaches. And so um, Jenkins got within eight miles of the town. Actually, a detachment actually got to the outskirts of Harrisburg. And there were some skirmishes going on there between primarily militiamen and, um, and these, this cavalry force, but nothing major. You also set the scene in Harrisburg, and this is June 16th, so this is 12 days before the battle, right, right in our neighborhood here. And you say, all-out panic began to grip Harrisburg. Records, portraits, and other valuables were removed from the State House and sent to safety. Shops were boarded up and merchandise sent to Philadelphia for safekeeping. Bankers did the same with their currency. Thousands thronged to the railroad station, hoping to catch a train. It didn't matter where, as long as it was miles from the approaching rebels. One observer wrote that the movement is no longer a flight, it is a flood. Mm -hmm. Must have been quite a scene. Oh, I can't imagine. Did much of that happen in, in other towns in the, in the advent of uh, Lee arriving? Oh, yes. Remember, the day before, on the 15th, is when 3,000 Confederate cavalrymen are now occupying Chambersburg, and nobody is getting rid of them. There's no troops. And so what's happening then is if you live in Harrisburg, not that far away, you're panicking. They were digging entrenchments in Harrisburg, um, in Pennsylvania, in Baltimore, uh, it, it's amazing to think about the panic because now it was a tangible threat. You had Confederate troops in Chambersburg. Who knew where they were going to go? Who knew what was behind them? 
and who knew what was going to happen in the future. So a lot of panic, um, panic in Pennsylvania, in, in Philadelphia, in, in Baltimore, even in New York City. And it's interesting, uh, when Lincoln called for militia, he asked for about 150 additional militia, uh, the only two states that really responded was New Jersey and New York. And it wasn't that they were being benevolent, it was because they knew they were next, unless they acted. Your book has a uh, short chapter on July 1st and a very short chapter on July 2nd. Uh, how did you decide to wind down the book? I mean, what happens at the end? We're not really giving away the end. Mm -hmm. They all arrive at Gettysburg. Yes, they uh, do. How did you decide to end it? Well, basically, for me, it was when all of the units finally arrive on the battlefield. And so it's interesting that the, the largest federal corps, the 6th Corps, was in uh, Westminster and Manchester, uh, Maryland. They had the longest uh, uh, route to travel. And so it took them uh, July 1 into July 2, actually the afternoon of July the 2nd, about 4 o'clock, to reach the battlefield. So when the last unit reached the battlefield, the book was over. But, um, but the interesting thing is the battle obviously was, was occurring at this point. So that's why July 1, there were units occur, you know, reaching it at that point and also July 2nd. But the, the, the second, that chapter, obviously is going to be the shortest because most of the troops were on the battlefield by um, June, July the 2nd. Do you... Uh have another book in mind? I mean, what happens after this? Or do you have 10 different books in mind that you want to write? That's the problem. You know, I, I have so many ideas that I'm saying which way to go. Um, actually, I have a book that should be coming out fairly soon by White Main. Uh, it's called, you'll never guess the topic, Brian. It's about Gettysburg. It's the artillery of Gettysburg. Um, most people don't realize the major role that the artillery played. You know, we, we primarily think about the infantry. The artillery played a large role, especially the federal artillery. The, fe the Confederate really um, didn't play that big a role. There were, theirs were largely ineffective. And so this takes the battle from July 1 through July 3 from the standpoint of the artillerymen. And obviously I draw on a lot of resources of the, of the infantry, but the role that they played. So that's finished, that's in the hopper. And now I'm looking at other kinds of projects um, I may be doing a, a full history of the, uh, the Confederate artillery during the Civil War. There was something on, the, on Lee's army, there was something on the Federal Army of the Potomac um, artillery, but nothing on the Confederates. Um, I may do something on Valley Forge, another tour guide on Valley Forge. You know, for me, um, and this may sound a bit odd, when I go to Valley Forge, when I go to Gettysburg, it's almost like we owe something to these men and women. And I'll go to Valley Forge, and I'll see that there's really nothing there in terms of materials that people really understand what these men went through when they encamped there um, you know, during the Revolutionary War. Same thing with Gettysburg. I want people to be able to go and really understand the sacrifices. Um, you know, you can, you can watch the movie Gettysburg, you can, um, you can, you can go through the visitor center. Um, there's many ways that you can get a flavor, but, but the tour guides I think are, are critical because people can drive around and see what happens. You know, what, what bothers me, quite frankly, is when people come from a great distance, and you see many people do this. They'll simply, they'll take the tour, they'll read the sign, but they don't know really what's going on. You know, they don't understand the significance of it. And if I can play even a small role in, in helping people understand what really happened, um, 
it, I think it makes a difference, and, and it helps me to justify some of that sacrifice. This is the book we've been talking about. We've been talking about quite a few, but this is the main one, Road to, Roads to Gettysburg, Lee's Invasion of the North. Brad Gottfried, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.